Hi, Dad. Hi, Celine. Did you know that you and I are about the same age if you count time living in the world? What do you mean? Well, as you know, I left a high-control religious group around the time you were born. So you're in your 20s then? <laughs> well, maybe in my head. The thing is, though, because I had all of my beliefs about morals, science, politics, religion, philosophy provided for me, I spent the last 25 years trying to work out what I should think about a whole bunch of stuff and work out what's going on. No one knows what's going on, Dad. <laughs> well, I think it's about time we did. What Should I Think About is a podcast that sets off on a lofty goal to make sense of the complicated, contradictory, confusing but wonderful thing we call the world. Hello and welcome to What Should I Think About. I'm Stephen and uh, Celine's not with me today because we've got uh, three special guests and we're going to talk about the conference that we attended recently, the ICSA conference, International Cultic Studies Association conference. So we've got three guests that were all at the conference. We're going to talk about that. We're going to review it. So I'm very, very excited today. It's a very special episode of What Should I Think About. So I'm going to introduce them one by one. Um, so first of all, we're going to welcome um, Daniel O'Brien. Daniel is a professional educator. He was a speaker at the event, so we can talk a little bit about that. Um, and he left the Jehovah's Witnesses over, what, a sort of decade ago. Uh, Daniel, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stephen. It's great to be here. Uh, yes, I left the religion uh, physically in 2009. I had recognized it was a cult many years before 2002 or 2003, and it's been quite a journey. And uh, one of the best things about it um, for the healing process is getting to know fellow people like yourself and, um, and Casey and Erica, as we've had different but similar journeys and learning to, to leave whatever group we were in and heal and recover from that. So thank you. Brilliant. Uh, thank you, Daniel. And um, listeners will recognize Daniel's voice because Daniel has been on the show before. So um, if you want to know more about Daniel's story, obviously check out uh, Daniel's episode. So yeah, thank you very much for coming on the show. Um, and we've also got um, award-winning um, Erica Bornman. Um, so Erica received the Diane Cassoni Award at the conference for written work Addressing Areas of Cultic Phenomena for her book, Mission of Malice. Also a previous guest on the show, Erica. Fantastic. Thank you for coming on the show. Welcome. Hi, Stephen. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, thank you so much. I'm so looking forward to this conversation. And um, may I just say that your presentation at the conference uh. was very illuminating. <laughs> I loved the way you presented, the energy you brought to the to the presentation. So yeah, let's not let's not forget that uh, little detail. You're too kind. Thank you very much. Right. Okay. Well, lovely to have you. So so happy to have you on the show. And finally, last but not least, we have Casey from, I'm going to say, the leading cult-focused uh, podcast, um, The Cult Vault. Um, so, Casey, um, first time you've been on our show, so welcome. Thank you, Stephen. I'm so glad to be here. I know that you're going to be joining me on my show in a few months' time, but I'm really glad that we've got this opportunity to connect today because we're in the same time zone and we're actually speaking live to one another, which is great. And in amongst very esteemed company. So thank you for this Absolutely. opportunity, Stephen. 
Oh, it's great. Um, yeah, so we're, we're really, you know, trotting around the globe today. We've got uh, Daniel from, from the USA. He's, he's calling from uh, California. We've got um, uh, Erica from South Africa and then us two Brits here in the good old UK. So, um, yeah, all different um, continents and time zones. Right, so um, let's crack on with talking about the conference. So we all attended it. It was the 2022, if you're listening back to this, in years to come, um, ICSA, International Cortex Studies Association Conference. It was three days, absolutely jam-packed with lots and lots of different sorts of things from individual presentations to panels where things were discussed to workshops and all sorts of things like that. So I found it really, really interesting. Um, but we want to kind of get into some, I suppose, we, we wanted not to just do everything in a very surface way. We wanted to talk about our real highlights um, and what we really found interesting. So we're, we're going to do that first, see how long that takes us, and then uh, we might mop up other things later. But So first of all, highlights for us. Who wants to start? Um, I should have thought of this before I started. Right, Erica, let's, let's go to you first, Erica. Um, Erica, you, you're going to talk a little bit about the legal stuff, aren't you? Because that was one of the subjects that was covered quite a bit on the conference was the legal aspects of court so uh, what did you find interesting what what did you uh, which of those presentations are you drawing from so i found a particular interest um a professor of law dr linda demain and she's a professor of law at the arizona state university um, and has always also worked um in behavioral science and and she her um, talk was titled Legal Aspects of Harm and Victimization in Cultic Groups. And what I found very interesting, so it was obviously she was speaking from a US perspective, but yeah. I am interested in seeing um, the cult that I grew up in, Kwasi Zabantu. I want to see them in court. Unfortunately, the leader who started the whole thing is on his deathbed if he isn't already dead and they've put him on ice um but yeah well i mean they haven't even told their their congregants that he has been suffering from dementia for the last seven eight years so that's why i'm saying like i think he's still alive because like i wouldn't put anything past them but anyway so he's never gonna see the inside of a courtroom mm -hmm. but i sincerely hope that some others would see the inside of a courtroom. And so this is of particular interest to me. And um, I, she, it was really interesting. And she spoke about how difficult it has been for um, former members of cults to find recourse in the courts. And um, she said it's a given that people who have been physically harmed by the wrongdoing of others are compensated and vindicated. Mm. Um, but the, when it comes to what the courts call pure emotional harm, things like um, sorrow, anxiety, humiliation, depressions and such, and they they don't like um, looking at those kinds of things and that there are various um, reasons for that. Um, and that in the US, um, if, uh, there are no criminal claims of extreme persuasion. Um, and that would likely fall within the pure emotional realm. And um, 
then she discussed the policy concerns that courts have actually stated why this is so tricky. And um, the courts believe that emotional harm might open up what they call the floodgates of litigation. So there would be such a huge number of claims that it would overwhelm the legal system, um, which I suppose is a valid concern. Um, then the courts also believe that there's a wide potential for fraud, like you can prove physical harm more easily than, than um, mental harm. And that damages given for pure emotional harm are speculative because emotional harm is less easily translated into financial compensation. Mm-hmm. And then she mentioned a few other reasons that why the courts distinguish between physical harm and emotional harm. And one of the reasons is that they don't want to overexpose the defendants to liability, which just blows my mind. Um <laughs> By overexposing, uh, the courts don't want to overexpose them to a substantial amount of liability that seems to be out of line with their misconduct. Um, And because a single negligent act can inflict emotional harm on a large number of people. Now, I see that as problematic. But anyway, this is Mm. she obviously does too. But well, I imagine. And then the courts also recognize that there's some degree of what they refer to as emotional strife. That is a natural part of everyday life. And they believe that individuals must learn to accept and cope with this, like lower level distress and things like that. And, and um, she points out that they could say the same thing about physical harms, and that you could only bring a claim in court for physical harm if it was extremely major. But the courts don't do that. And that is another sign that courts treat these mental harm claims differently than physical harm claims and that they treat them in an inferior status way. So so one of the things that um, that I took from that was um, all, all of what you said, um, Erica, but also this, I suppose it, also, it almost kind of cut across lots of the issues that we find when we talk about cults. So things like free will, for instance, was it, it wasn't quite, as philosophically discussed as we might discuss it, but from a legal perspective, you know, people, for the law to work in any way, people have to, or the law has to accept that people are responsible to some degree for their own actions. Um, And part of the whole thing with cultic groups is that the, um, that, the agency that people have is very much reduced and so you know their responsibility is diminished um so that i think that's that's another complication it, it kind of undermines one of the basic precepts of of the law is that actually individuals are responsible for what they do um so i thought that was quite quite interesting yeah absolutely and and that is that the that as she mentioned that 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 is the defense that the cult could then come forward mm. with. And they call it comparative responsibility, that the, the, the defend, that the, that the plaintiff actually bears some responsibility. And that also yeah. then goes into this ver- these very murky waters of consent. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so really interesting. She, she did mention two, two ca- three cases, three um cases that that one could potentially build on and the first is obviously the racketeering that was brought against nexium successfully brought against nexium yeah um which is very important and then there there's the suicide coercion 
um, which has set a precedent, the Michelle Carter case, mm-hmm. um, where, she, where the courts found that she was um, kind of responsible for the suicide of her boyfriend because she instigated it. And, and later on, she pointed out that what was really important here was the text messages and the and the and the actual physical that the that the jury could read the physical messages which and she says these seem to bear more weight than just testimony so for yeah. people like me who left so long ago that doesn't help but people who are leaving mm. like shortly and yes Kwasi Sabantu delete all those WhatsApp messages don't worry we've downloaded them all <laughs> just saying um but yes, so so how crucial it is to actually have the the evidence mm. that people can people seem to rely on more than just a verbal testimony and how important that is. And then the other thing is with with where people contest wills and they say that there was undue influence in having this person mm. sign this will. Now that is something that maybe we could, you know, like yeah. used as a as some kind of legal precedent, which I found really interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's right. They were looking for different ways in, really, weren't they? So, yeah, taking precedents from the the Michelle was it Carter case? You said because yes. um, I, I saw a documentary about that because even now that's actually quite controversial as a case um, to suggest that she had any really responsibility for her boyfriend's death when you kind of look into it further. So it's still quite a controversial one to use as a precedent. Um, yeah. Um, very, very interesting. Yeah. It's, it's a real minefield. It's an area that I haven't really given very much attention to, but I know in some respects it is the battlefield really um, that uh, I guess we, we should, we ought to pay more attention to. All right. That was, that was really interesting. Thank you, Erica. Um, okay. Daniel, do you want to talk a little bit about, um, so you, you're going to talk a little bit about the conspiracy theory stuff, which there was quite a few presentations about that, wasn't there? Uh, yes. First kind of some general um, comments about the overall conference. This was the fourth ICSA sponsored event I've gone to two workshops here in Los Angeles, two years apart. And um, this conference virtually held, but hosted in Montreal. And in 2017, I went to one in Bordeaux, France. That was the first time I ever attended an ICSA event. And one of the things, excuse me, and one of the things I really appreciate about these ICSA events is you have a variety of presentations, both who is giving them and who the audience is, whether it's former cult members, like ourselves, who are talking about our own experiences and what we've learned for it, uh, from it and how we can help others, or mental health professionals and what they're doing to, to help people who have, are either in a cult or family members or people who have transitioned and are trying to heal and, and rebuild their lives. One of the things that has always really stood out to me, and this gives a lot of context about why I wanted to talk about the uh, conspiracy theory presentation that um, I want to highlight is one of the things that I really learned when I went to the Bordeaux cult is that as much as different cults seem extremely different superficially, and and granted there are differences in in degree and extreme, it's not a scientific term. Essentially, if something is a cult, if a group is a cult, whether it's religious or psychotherapy or political or whatever, a self-help thing, the things that make it a cult are essentially the same kind of under the hood. 
right? It, it's the undue influence. It's the isolation. It's the control. It's trying to take away our locus of control from us as individuals and f- transform our personality into whatever to match that of the cult leader, who is usually, whether it's an individual or a group, um, a psychopathic, malignant narcissist. And, and that kind of ties into to something that you and I have talked about, maybe doing some more future research on healing and rebuilding our lives. When we leave, there are similarities, but also big differences, whether we were born into a cult mm-hmm. like yourself yeah. Yeah. or joined it as an adult like myself. I was in my early mid 20s or like an in-betweener, like someone mm-hmm. maybe in their early teens, late adolescence who kind of had a former self. They remember maybe celebrating Christmas or whatever. Then they get indoctrinated for a decade or two, and then they come out. So, so that's that's a really interesting set of, of things, and all of that really set up why I chose to kind of focus on the uh, presentation that uh, Rachel Bernstein gave about conspiracy theories, why they've recently grown, and what they teach us. Uh, Rachel's a psychologist. I met her here in Los Angeles. In 2018, when I went to one of the Ixod workshops, and um, she was at both of them. And so here in the United States, probably some of you have heard about some of the stuff that have been going on for the last few years and how politically we are getting more and more divided as a country. Mm-hmm. It's, it's ironic. We call it the United States of America. It's really become the divided states, just United States of America. In fact, um, I, I'm a history teacher for high school. And I have my students in the fall each year do a project on how our country has become divided. And I've done this for like six years. And every year I do it, it's like, wow, it's worse than it was last year. Hmm. And, and one of the things that um, that became popular a few years ago is a, um, a, a cult-like group called QAnon. Um, and, and Rachel did talk a lot about QAnon. She's also here in Southern California. But she used that as just one example of conspiracy theories, which kind of seem like a subset of the whole cultic mindset. You know, one of the big questions that a lot of people ask whether um, we were in a cult and we joined it, it's like, how did I get caught up in that thing? Or, or people who have family members, it's like, they seem so smart. How did they get in a cult? And, and the whole reason people buy into conspiracy theories <clears throat> was the whole reason people buy into conspiracy theories was very on point with that. Some of the things that Rachel talked about, excuse me, some of the things Rachel talked about is how it feels good to be in the know. Right. And she referenced like when we were kids, we had decoder spy rings and things like that. It gives you a sense of specialness and a Mm -hmm. sense of privilege. Right. And, And it's interesting how, um, Wherever we are, when we join a cult, born in or or later, adults are susceptible to this too. We want to feel special. We want to feel that we have some privilege, that we know things that other people don't know. And a big thing she said that drives this is a kind of a general sense of fear or anxiety. What does the future hold? And um, that's a very important thing. People who are afraid of whatever, uh, afraid of the future, here a lot of people in the United States are, are afraid, uh, especially white people who are afraid of being replaced by other minority groups. And, you know, we could go off on tangents about that for a long time. But fear kind of drives this. And also one of the things people are looking for is something to feel connected. 
and these conspiratorial theories and and thinking it's like a modern mythology that people can connect to and and the internet has has really enabled this to become something that it couldn't have been in the past because these these frankly crazy ideas could not be disseminated so well hmm. and that was one of the things that I appreciated Rachel made a, an important comment about one reason people will buy into conspiracy theories is because they often do contain a grain of truth. And so that's what people latch on to. And she spent a great deal of time talking about how is it we can learn to distinguish between conspiracy ideas that might have some merit and might have some basis in reality. Uh, Let's face it, governments don't always tell their people the Mm -hmm. truth. That is a fact. Um, and, And any other kind of group often don't. But then a lot of these ideas are just so untethered, unconnected to any evidence or reality. So why do people believe those things? <clears throat> One of the things she pointed to, and a lot of cults do this, um, and she again, she was using the QAnon thing as an example. Uh, we still don't know who Q is, if it was one or multiple people, that they would post things that were cryptic. And it's this anonymous person who claimed to be in a high level position in the government with no evidence to back that up, just an assertion. And yet people who want to believe that they will interpret these cryptic messages to confirm their worldview, to confirm their beliefs, to confirm their fears. And that's one of the things that anybody who joins a cult will often take the cult's message and and they'll elaborate it. I know one of the things people said to me, uh, my family and, and friends that I had known when I left the cult, they said, how did you ever join that cult? You seem too smart to that, uh, to do that. And, and it's sort of like a, a left-handed compliment, right? <laughs> you seem too <laughs> smart to have done something so dumb, right? <laughs> uh, but I later learned, and this is from the work of Stephen Hassan, um, that often people who are intelligent or creative will fill in the gaps We'll make up the rest of the story that's missing. And it becomes exciting to us because we're now participating in that. Yeah. And then um, what I appreciated she finished with, and this was an important thing. And again, Rachel's a psychologist, so she's more speaking from the perspective to other mental health professionals. How can we help people who are in a group or family members who have someone they love in a group or people who have left? She talked about how hard it is for people to admit that they've been conned. And that was a really interesting thing. She, she talked about how some people are still determined to believe, in, even in the spite of no evidence, some people become disillusioned and they're sort of untethered and other people become sort of despondent. And as I'm sure we've experienced, when we realize that we were manipulated, we're often angry and filled with resentment. And uh, those are totally understandable emotions, but they're not necessarily productive unless we learn how to channel that in a healthy way. And and so kind of to wrap it up, since it's happening in a country where I live, it's really affecting uh, people. And it's no doubt it's a part of the violence that we're seeing. Everybody in the rest of the world is like, what's wrong with you Americans? Are you fucking crazy? Gun violence is like off the chart compared to every single country, industrialized country on earth. It's like no other country is even close. And we just had that mass shooting again, just the other day, just another example of 
yesterday, 4th of July, supposed to be celebrating our country. And, and there was a parade going down the street outside of Chicago, Illinois, and, and a shooter killed, what, six people and injured like uh, two dozen more. Just another example of this insanity. And there's evidence that was fueled by some of these QAnon conspiracy theories. Wow. I hadn't even heard of that. And that is so telling to how normalized th- these things have become. And that is hugely problematic in itself. Oh. Yes, it is. Um, even yeah. calling it normalized is abnormal. <laughs> and so not yeah. only as a citizen in this country, but as a high school teacher who I have my, oh my st- goodness, that I want to help them to learn how to, to think clearly, how to think critically, how to analyze not only historical activities in the past, but give them a frame of reference so they can somehow make some sort of sense about what's going on now in our world and in our country, and hopefully make a difference, a positive difference for change. So, so I'm looking at this from a couple of different lenses. Back to the discussion with Casey, Erica and Daniel shortly. If you're enjoying the podcast and you'd like to support it, you can do so in a few different ways. Firstly, leaving a rating or a review really helps get the podcast noticed. So please, if you can, give a review on whatever type of application you're listening to. You can also become a patron for just £1 or $1.50 a month. And there's only one tier. And finally, please tell people about the show. We know that word of mouth is a really important way of people finding out about what should I think about. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the discussion. Now, Stephen, your your talk was all about um, how education after you left the Jehovah's Witnesses helped teach you critical thinking, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I really enjoyed listening to that because... I have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder um, about not having gone to university. I wasn't allowed to. And when I ran away, I had to work in order to just survive. So um, I and I always I've always thought that I have such a lack in my life for not having gone to university. And I was quite reluctant if, if it had been anybody other than you, I wouldn't have attended the talk. But because I adore you, I thought, <laughs> I'm going to attend the talk. And I'm so glad I did. Um, and it was so illuminating. But, yes, so, so Daniel, how amazing that you're actually cognizant of needing to instill that in, um, in people that, 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 yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think a lot of us um... – go into some sort of um, education, I mean training, um, these industries where you are kind of talking for a living. I think there's something about um, being a Jehovah's Witness. You are taught how to talk. That is the one thing you are taught how to do. So um, I think a lot of us end up in those kind of um, jobs. Not everybody, obviously. And I think it's definitely easier for males. Um, It's the men that get to do 
Um, so it's, it's a bit different for, for women in the organization, which is one of the reasons I really like to feature um, so many of these fantastic female authors that are just continually putting out fantastic work. Erica, of course, you're one of them, but also um, Kimberly, who I spoke to recently, Ali Miller, um, just she had a, a, a whole spread in the Sunday Times this weekend about her book that's coming out shortly. It's just um, so brilliant to see all these people find a voice. Um, Casey, let's um, let's come to you. So what, what are you going to feature? Well, I just wanted to quickly take the opportunity to say that I appreciated both the panels that, that yourself, Stephen, and you, Daniel, presented. It was interesting, I thought, as both ex-Jehovah's Witnesses to see the parallels, not just between your experiences in the Jehovah's Witnesses, but your experiences as individuals in the same organization so you both talked about how much education meant to both of you how much it opened doors changed your whole perspective on everything and also how much your children impacted your lives and I just wanted to take a minute Daniel to say that I was heartbroken to hear about your circumstances around your shunning and your children and how it must be the hardest thing in the world to live so close to them and not be able to have the relationship with them that a father should um so i just wanted to t- take a minute to to just say that um thank you and daniel there were some really interesting things that you mentioned around your thoughts on on rachel's panel ab- about QAnon, um specifically talking about fear which which is quite a big part of the cult of trump i don't know if anybody's had a chance to read that yet mm. yeah we reviewed it going back a few months actually um yeah, interesting. Hassan's book, um, The Court of Trump. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So much in there about, you know, Trump really pandering to, to mm. community groups within America that are fearful of of one thing or another and really, really using that to, to push his agenda. So I just thought that that was really interesting as well. And the whole, you know, one small grain of truth in amongst a lot of stuff that sounds, you know, really bizarre or fringe. Um, that's how con people work as well you know they throw a load of stuff in with one grain of truth and if you can substantiate that you're like oh well maybe the red flags aren't as crazy as I think they are you know and and it's exactly the same I think in in a lot of these um, conspiracy groups that 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 we hear about online but the, the biggest thing that I took from that panel that Rachel delivered is that I'm not compassionate enough myself around how I perceive people that are um kind of within these community groups at the moment I feel like when I speak about organized cults uh, or cult-like groups it's easy to say like I can see how someone falls victim to this but because QAnon is not as organized in in the same sense it to me then feels like maybe I'm writing people off as getting themselves into these situations. And and Rachel's panel really opened my eyes into how I actually need to be more sensitive and mindful of people that are going through these experiences because they are in these situations for the same reason that other people have found themselves in cults and cult-like groups. So I really appreciated Rachel's, Rachel's talk on that. Um, And I thought that it was illuminating. So I've had to go inside myself and do a little bit of work, which is always a good thing, I think, to be reflecting on and having a look at. But uh, my highlight from the 
conference. This was my first conference. I got to attend thanks to the Joan Capellini scholarship and I had a little read up about Joan and she just sounds like an absolute gem of a of a woman and and everything she contributed to cultic studies i hope that we can only continue to build on her legacy um i know that erica attended the the conference through the same scholarship as well so a massive thank you to to her family and for all of joan's work for allowing us those opportunities and the the panel that stuck with me the most was a panel by kristin decker she titled it a cruel arithmetic uh, which is a book written by Craig Elton Jones, A Cruel Arithmetic Inside the Case Against Polygamy. And she spoke about her experiences growing up um, in a, a a forced polygamist marriage and escaping um, and also what that means for other people who are experiencing those things right now. And the work that she is doing with the Sound Choices Coalition, which is a nonprofit that she has founded to provide resources for people that flee those environments and have absolutely nothing with them when they leave. So after um, I've spoken to Erica about this a lot recently, after looking a lot more about uh, the FLDS movement and speaking to various people who have survived those environments, um, I really found that this panel was informative, but also emotive as well, which is, I mean, I mean, what more can you ask for from a panel, you know? So I thought it was great. Kristen talked about the difference. When we say polygamy, I thought that that was the term for people with multiple husbands and wives. But actually, there's two different words. So polygyny is the word for a man with multiple wives. And polyandry is the word for a woman with many husbands. But because polyandry doesn't really tend to exist in, in the Western societies that we look at in terms of parts of America uh, with with polygamous marriages... We just kind of use the term polygamy because that is what we are most familiar with. So that was one of the biggest things that I took away from that panel. But also Kristen took the time to discuss how polygamy is in the majority of religious settings always going to be forced or coerced in some way. And what comes with that is the lack of sex and relationship education and the protection of women and men's rights within those environments. Of course, we can't even speak to other genders and other sexualities because those are not allowed to exist within the the Christian movements that adopt polygamy um, as a practice. So Kristen did a really good job of talking about why people can't just leave, how they are forced to stay in these environments what would happen if they tried to leave um and i thought it was really well done and then to back that up there was another panel by jane ridley who is the director of the sound choices coalition who spoke about human rights violations in the u.s legal system and that just really tied up Kristen's panel perfectly so you had the 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 really human lived experience side in Kristen's panel backed up with you know, why the US legal system is is letting people down in terms of forced polygamy. Fantastic. Um, Erica, you you, uh, you wanted to come in on a couple of things there. Um, <laughs> do you want to come in? Uh, you were dying to come in. 
Yes, so the really interesting thing about the polygamy is I recently listened to a podcast called Short Creek, um, and that was fascinating. And one of the women who was in a polygamous marriage said that something that people don't realize is like by the time she had like a bunch load of children, because I don't think they believe in contraception either. Um, her interest in her husband had definitely faded and the other wives were welcome to him. But what she really appreciated was the help that her sister wives gave her in raising her children. And that for me was such a, it was a little bit of a, a light bulb moment because I'd never considered positive aspects. And then that brings me to a question that Casey, so what I loved about the virtual conference was the WOVA app that they used to conduct this conference, because not only could you listen to the, to the talks, but you could actually engage with the other people going. And I know in a physical um, in-person conference, you can do that. But but I don't know that I would have spoken to half the people um, mm. had, had it been an in-person event. And you could pose questions and people would then answer the questions. And Casey asked a question, and I think it was on your, on this thread, Casey, where Casey asked a question is like, what should you bear in mind when you're speaking to an ex-cult member? And this ties in with something you said earlier, Daniel, about that they are different. They are different ex-cult members. They're the people born into it, the people who get into it as an adult, and that. And someone in the thread, and I think it was this thread, but in the thread mentioned that um, you mustn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, they are good things. And what are the good things that you took from this? And I responded, and I have to say that in there was only one discussion where I think one person got a little bit horrible, but he was quickly put to right. But the, 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 the discussions were so um, respectful, mm. like you could disagree with somebody, but it was done in such a respectful way. So I just responded and I said, I think that could be true for adult people or people who get involved as an adult. As a child, I really battle to see the good and then she was like yeah but 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 did you did, did you gain positive aspects and I said well maybe resilience but like I if I could spare children from going through that I would I don't see anything good there and someone else piped in and said yes um, I had to throw out the baby and the bathwater, like for me in order to be able to survive. And then another man piped in and I thought his response was brilliant. I was trying to find it now, but I couldn't. Um, but he said something to the, to the effect of he found that instead of asking people what was good about the cult, ask them what drew you to it. And that is such a small difference but it just immediately just made me feel all warm and fuzzy towards him for for finding the answer to how do you ask that question? Because, of course, if you're an adult or a student, and so many of these these things um, target students who are out of yeah. out of home for the first time, they've left home, they're exploring, they want to make a difference in the world and this 
place is offering this organization is offering them a chance to make a difference. And I think that's a misperception that so many people have about former members of cults is these are good people usually, you know, good, good, good people who end up doing awful things. But anyway, so that was like, yeah. oh, so many light bulb moments while you guys were talking. So <laughs> blah, 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 blah. Anyway. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I mean, that, that reminds me of your, um, your presentation, Daniel, because you, you, you were attracted to this. Um, I think you called it international brotherhood, um, which, which was really attractive. So, I mean, that's, that says something about you, doesn't it? Um, your, your personality and um yeah that that's understandable why you'd be attracted to something like that well exactly um and, and that's sort of related to the idea was there anything good um, yeah but the ironic thing about it is the idea of an international brotherhood and and people who could celebrate diversity was attractive to me but it was just false advertising it doesn't actually really exist in in mm. the cult um and so <clears throat> Um, so Casey and Erica, you may or may not know this, but, uh, in the, in the previous podcast that Stephen and I did, we talked a lot about education, he being born in and, and myself joining Jehovah's Witnesses and an adult. And yet education was one of the things that was so fundamentally important in helping us to not only leave, but, but to rebuild or build a life for ourselves that we didn't have mm-hmm. while we were in the cult, which is so ironic because Jehovah's Witnesses claim to be in, involved in a worldwide Bible educational right. act, but it's really just a worldwide Bible indoctrination act yes. and propaganda. <clears throat> um, and yet education was not only important to us, for me, it, it really helped drive me out of the cult, but for both of us, it helped us to to find ourselves, to understand the, the things that had been done to us that weren't helpful and to, to recover from that. Um, so uh, interesting about education, how, how a lot of the Jehovah's Witnessing seems to be educational, but it, it really isn't at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to address a couple of things Casey said too. Um, so first of all, Casey, thank you for those kind, uh, compassionate words uh, about the situation with my two sons. It's, it's difficult, even still. Um, after all these years, and like I said, one of them lives a block away from me, and I drive by his house a couple times a week, just going about my ordinary business. We haven't really had a conversation in 13 years, so I keep hoping, but I try and be realistic and, and, and practical about that, um, but not giving up hope. Um, so, Casey, let's see. You said something else that I thought was really interesting. We've talked about so many things. Maybe it'll come back to me later. I want it, but I wanted to address something you said. Now I don't remember what it was. I should have made a note. Um, <laughs> come back in as soon as you remember it, Daniel. <laughs> <It's not laughs> <my notebook> so far, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I want to. Oh, sorry, go on, Erica. You, Stephen, you haven't told us what talk stood out for you. Yeah, the, I'm. I'm going to talk about one that um, it's a bit of a niche one. But before I before I talk about that, I just wanted to pick up on Daniel's thread about education. Um, and the, the, I think for me, what, what I wanted to do in, in my presentation was, um, talk about the way that education was more than just a route out of, um, you know, not having any opportunities. It was, it was actually a way to define, help define myself and find, 
build this um, this identity so it was focusing on that and i mean that came up quite a lot in the in the various different presentations i think um, you know a lot of our discussions were around self and identity and and all of that um, and for me, this this idea that, and it doesn't have to be education, actually, it can be any anything that the person can use as a kind of tool to help create a, a thread from the, the former cult member to, to the person they are now. Because I have a bit of a different, slightly different attitude toward identity that I think some do within, within the cult research uh, group in that. I, I think sometimes it's talked about a bit too simplistically, like you have this pseudo cult self and you have this authentic um, self. And so that's, you know, we don't really think that identity is quite as simple as that. It's very complicated. Lots of, we think about ourselves in different ways in lots of different times. Um, so actually what you're doing is you're, you're working at your identity. You're working at this story that you're telling yourself about yourself all through your life. Um, there's actually a, um a another um presentation by nori muster called um i think it was hers it was about stories wasn't it um and i found that very interesting as well because that was the same sort of idea that actually what we're doing is we're always telling stories we're creating a narrative um got little stories little chapters little things that are fairly mundane and they they all piece together into this this way of understanding ourselves and, and that's that's what we're doing all of the time so for me i think education helped me do that somebody else it could be activism for somebody else it could be a hobby a sport or, or whatever you know and i think um at writing obviously for for lots of people that's that's been a way um to make sense of themselves so yeah that that's something that i'd like to investigate more the way that we use stories to make sense of ourselves um yeah, the, the one I was going to talk about, uh, Erica, did you want to come back on that? No, her, it was oh, okay. um, Nori Master. It was called The Power of Story. And I found that absolutely brilliant. Uh, yeah, but I yeah, that. I loved that as well. She was in the Hare Krishna movement. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was that. That was really uh, my ears pricked up when I when I heard that. Um, yeah, so the one I I found really interesting was a, a really quirky little. Um, oh, go on, Daniel. You've got, you've you've found a a new tool on the Zencaster I didn't even know existed. Um, I you did. put your hand up. Little go hand there is so nice. Yeah, yeah. Look at that. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to comment on a few things that I really appreciated mm. in, in your presentation. Uh, although we had a lot of things in in common. Uh, we, we explored them in different ways. So I like that you gave um, the experiences of uh, three different former Jehovah's Witnesses, if I got their names right, Ben, Julie, and Fiona, and, and how after they left, they were able to reflect on the certain things. Um, and this was kind of like what Erica was saying about, was there anything good in it? Um, the, the things that they did enjoy doing when they were in the cult, like with Ben, he enjoyed giving talks. He enjoyed being... Uh, funny, and, and then he realized, oh, uh, he should be a comedian, yeah. right? And, and so uh, with Julie, that that she liked the teaching part, and so she became an educator. Um, the one thing that's interesting about that, and I know people have asked me, was there anything good about it? Well, there were, and it, for me, it was the thing that it's like, I liked the teaching part, I became an educator. But, 
you can learn those things without belonging to a cult. You don't have to go into a cult to learn those couple of good things, right? So so the negative far outweighs the positive, and, and the positive are readily available without ever joining a cult. So uh, that's that's yeah. my, my little disclaimer there. So that, that whole thing about identity and discovering who we are, I mean, that's a challenge for people who've never even been Absolutely. in a cult. Yeah. It's just more of a challenge if you are, because the cult wants to remake you in the image of themselves. Mm. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, yeah, the the, um, the 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 one that the the talk I was really interested in was um, by Stephen A. Kent and uh, Kelsey Lindquist. Um, this was a kind of weird little story that I didn't know about. Um, so I'll try and tell it quite quickly, but um, they, it looks like they've been writing a manuscript. So hopefully there's a book coming out about that. I need to check it out. Basically, going back to the 1950s, um, L. Ron Hubbard, as I think everybody here knows, was the, uh, the founder of Scientology um, and Dianetics. He wrote this book called Dianetics, which was this pseudo scientific um sort of psychological mumbo jumbo really um and um he thought it was brilliant you know he thought he was he was adding something to the world here um and it, it went down like a lead balloon uh, amongst um, the world of psychology and psychiatry which really put him put him on a, a head-to-head um collision course with with that uh, that group and because he was so angry about the way he'd been treated, um, he he decided to essentially, uh, well, try and try and wreak revenge on on them by. So what he did, um, well, basically there was this book that appeared, um, and it essentially was called the Brainwashing Manual, um, and it was supposedly written or gathered from the Soviet Union. These were methods that the Soviet Union were using. It was at the time when people were worried about brainwashing from North Korea and so on. So this communist plot to take over America through brainwashing was kind of a conspiracy theory of its day. And um, he sort of used that. Um, this, uh, This author called Charles Stickley had found all these bits of information about this um, this these methods and produced this book which came to be known as the brainwashing manual the only thing is charles sickley does not exist never did exist it is actually l ron hubbard he wrote the book oh my goodness (laughs) he wrote this book um and it it kind of it it became because it, it fitted in with the the political fears of the day, it actually became quite popular and lots of people started to read it. And And the idea was that the psychiatrists and psychologists in the United States are basically being trained by the, the Soviet Union to overturn democracy. And, you know, basically they were communist agents. So this was the this was the uh, the way that, that it was sold. So you have the American Public Relations Forum, which is a, a sort of right-wing, um, ultra-conservative group. You have the anti-mental health movement, ultra-conservatives. You have the Minute Women, the Daughters of the American Revolution in the 60s, all adopting this book. Um, and then a guy called Kenneth Goff, who was apparently quite a well-known racist, using these ideas to 
he basically changed bits so that it was no longer the Soviets, it was the Jews, but obviously there were rumours about um, uh, anti-Semitism and, um, and the Soviet Union and so on and so on. And it, it, it kind of had a life of its own. Part of the problem as well was because L. Ron Hubbard had no way of copywriting it without giving away it was him. And also he, he didn't really there was a point where he realized it was going to come back on him. So he tried to withdraw it, but by then it was too late. It was out in the world. Um, by this time, it's now got a life of its own. It's, it's now become um, this, this Colonel Gordon, Jack Moore, apparently he claimed that it started 500 years before Christ in ancient Babylon, where a group of priests set out to execute a satanic plan to convert the world. Ah. It's like taken on this massive life of its own, um, and believe it or not, two thousand and was it nineteen? Um, a master student called Susan Piscator wrote a thesis and actually quotes from this book, um, and then it gets quoted in another book by Harry Nyman, which um, I've heard of actually, called. Um, Oh, what was it called? Something about the coming war with China. Um, so it's still, it's still there doing its work, a book that is complete fiction. Wow. Um, and it, it's still fueling conspiracy theories. I thought that was fascinating. That sounds really, really interesting. Erica. So in my book, which um, Casey and Stephen, you've read, is I yeah. kind of talk about this fictional book or this this book that doesn't exist called um how to start a cult for dummies and every now and again i'm like and this would be a chapter in this book and i'm thinking we should freaking write that book (laughs) but as an educational for people on what to look out for rather than how to dupe people but like what to look out for i've already got the outline yeah, it's it's frightening that I mean there there was that um uh you know birds don't exist meme that went around just as an experiment. Birds aren't real. So Come on, Stephen. Birds aren't, birds aren't, real. aren't real. Oh yeah, get it get it right, Stephen. Uh, but again, you know, people people adopt it, don't they? Um, yeah. So I yeah. just found that really fascinating. It's very different to the rest of it. I think he's in the Guinness World Book of Records as well for being the most published person to have Mm. ever lived. So even Mm. if he didn't hold that title, all of this other stuff that he's written that he doesn't even have the credit for would probably put him in that place anyway. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was prolific. There were these gems, um, these unexpected gems. The one that I listened to was The Wisdom of Tommy, how the Who's classic rock oh, yeah. opera informs about cultic dynamics. Now, mm. I the first time I heard a Queen song was when I was 23 years old. Like, we were oh. not allowed to listen to music, you know. <laughs> um, it, it was it was like Christian, anything with a beat in it was completely forbidden. Mm. Um, mm. So, so I didn't even know this, this um, rock opera existed. And after listening to this talk, it was so fascinating. Um, but that's what I loved about this conference is you could have, you had these, sometimes you had these really dry academics, like talk through their like very dry presentation, yes. which is why, Stephen, I loved your presentation as well so much because there was 
energy. So I kind of want to, but, 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 but I'm not an academic and I'm not like, I'm not dissing them at all. It's, it's just, I think giving a talk virtually is very different to when you're talking to an auditorium full of people. And then you had um, this uh, Steve Eichel, um, uh, the psychologist who, who spoke about this, um, this rock opera and it was such an unusual little thing yeah. in there that I absolutely loved. Yeah. I've not listened to that yet, but I, I do want to want to listen to that. I, I like the idea of um, taking popular things and d- doing a cult reading on it. It's um, I might as well get the plug in. Um, I've started a new podcast called oh. cults on film, which is basically that for films. So um, uh, finding films and doing a cult reading about them, um and just sort of uh you know it's, Stephen, a, it's a more it's of a interesting film. that you say that because i've been filming myself doing reactions to like scenes that include um cults or references yeah. to cults i just yeah. did um i watched an episode of uh, american horror story where they have yeah. a series called cults um and there's a lot of references to like charles manson in there and stuff so i was just basically recording myself pausing it and saying here i think what they're trying to say is <laughs> that sort of thing yeah, so it sounds, it's a rich it sounds quite it really similar is. yeah 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 it's a real rich vein um but yeah anyway that's um that's by the by daniel was talking about just films that are about cults or films that end up with a cult following like rocky horror pictures uh, or whatever the like former that. more than the latter for me um yeah but, i, I yeah, think the, there is some the, crossover though definitely crossover. yeah yeah um, I, I, I wanted to ask, um, Daniel, uh, you a question actually. Um, so we, we, a lot of the cults that we talk about, um, not all, obviously quasi Zavantu is a, is a major exception, but a lot of the cults that we are familiar with, um, seem to be based either in America or have come from America. Um, they, they seem to be an American phenom- phenomena, um, uh, have you got any? Obviously, the Q and on one is is the most recent example of that. Why is that? I, I, it's a big question, but um, have you got any thoughts on that? That's a great question. I'm not sure I know the answer to that one. <laughs> uh, but but uh, so it is kind of interesting going back to um, our our favorite cult, Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah. Uh, that grew out of the, what was called the Second Great Awakening in the United States, which was this interesting time when. A lot of great American thinkers like um, like uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau were actually kind of looking at a way to be spiritual in a more modern sense that, that a lot of people would use today, spiritual but not religious. And they were turning away from organized religion. And yet there were also um, also all of these things that were happening where people were starting what we now would call new religious movements. And um, the original founder of Jehovah's Witnesses uh, when it wasn't called that, Charles Taves Russell was part of that. And he, he just cobbled together a bunch of different mm-hmm. things. And, you know, poof, there's there's a new cult. Um, I did remember what I wanted to say about uh, oh, go on, yeah. Casey's comment. So if I can segue to that before Perfect. I forget. But it does tie into the whole cult of Trump thing. And some people aren't comfortable calling it that. Usually the ones who are in that cult, of course. <laughs> but you know, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's, <laughs> it's probably a, a duck. Um, and, and, and you just see the way these people, they, they follow Trump. And it's so bizarre because they're usually 
white evangelical Christians, not not always, but only about 98% of the time. Um, and, and Trump clearly does not embody any of, even superficially, what most people would associate with traditional Christian values. And, you know, yeah. I could riff on that. So it's just, it's just mind numbing. Why do you idolize a guy who is the antithesis of what you claim mm. to value? Grab them um, by the pussy. Mostly mm. it goes to their fear, this thing that's, that's called white replacement theory, which as a history teacher, uh, this country is a country of immigrants, and yet a lot of uh, white people don't want to I- embrace that. Um, and, and so some of the things that Casey, you, you mentioned about critical thinking, and how to teach that, that's become a big part of my educational practice. Um, I started doing a lot of research hoping I could reach my sons and haven't been able to share that with them. But I've been able to, because of that, I think become a better teacher with my high school students. Um, I like to, to, to paraphrase Margaret Mead, the anthropologist, where she was talking about children and I, um, I substitute the world, the word student instead of children, but students should be taught how to think, not what to think. Mm-hmm. And I like to share that with my students. It's, that's part of my goal, right? So sometimes they'll, they'll ask me, well, what do you think about this? Or what do you believe? It's like, trust me, I have thoughts and beliefs, but I'm not going to share those with you just yet because I don't want to bias you. I want you to look at the evidence. I want you to learn how to analyze it and share with me what you think and what you believe. And then afterwards, if it's appropriate, I will tell you. One of the things we spent a lot of time with um, because it's so important, and I base this a lot on the work of Jonathan Haidt, the psychologist who um, is an American psychologist who's very concerned with the divisions in our country for the last decade or so. Um, and so he's got a, a couple of great essays and books that he's written. A lot of, I'll plug for his book, even though I, I don't get anything from this, just sharing knowledge. Um, uh, the Righteous Mind, looking at where, where moral values come from. And he's got some things he made, um, he and a group of people made for first college students, then high school students. And we talk a lot about where do our own values and beliefs come from? So students get to reflect on that. And then how can we talk to people that we disagree with without alienating them? And, and that was the thing that, Casey, you were mentioning. It's it's so easy to say things that are so alienating, like, how could you believe that? That's stupid, right? Obviously, that's not going to help. But if we can find better ways, it's like, hmm, I don't I don't see it that way. I, I have a much different view of that. Can you explain to me why you look at it that way, why you believe that? And that won't always work, of course. But just having a different way to have conversations. And, you know, if we can have dialogue, then we, we have hope of reaching people, whether they're subscribing to some kooky conspiracy theory or they're in a cult and and. I forget whose presentation it was now, but but that was one of the big themes on if you can't have dialogue with someone who's still in a cult and you have any hope of reaching them and maintaining a relationship to leave, to make sure that you we don't say things that, mm. that put them on the defensive or, or make them double down. And I know early when I left and I did have some communication with my kids, I didn't know better and I made some yeah. of those mistakes and, and now I regret that. Um, but this also is why cults don't want their members to talk to people who have left because they know what will probably happen <laughs> or to go into further education because look at the two of you now that's right apostates <laughs> um, so did you know the the book it was <clears throat> written by nathaniel hawthorne called the scarlet letter 
Yeah. Okay, so you're familiar. So the the first American novel that it had a, a female main character who was the hero, right? Hester Prynne, the first American heroine in, in literature. So um, clearly riffing on that apocryphal bit of John uh, in, in the Gospel of John at the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8 where the woman's caught in adultery, right? And the, the Pharisees bring the woman to Jesus. What should we do with her? Moses said we should stone her. But, you know, Roman law says you can't do that and they're trying to trap him. And, you know, everybody's heard the famous line, you without sin throw the first stone, right? But so I, I personally think, and it's just my, my speculation that Nathaniel Hawthorne took that account and said, well, you know, they didn't talk about the guy. Where was the guy? If she committed adultery and they caught her red-handed, where was the guy, right? And so he wrote this fictional novel about in a Puritan village in, in Massachusetts in the 1600s. What would you do with a woman caught in adultery? Um, she was married, although her husband has been missing in action for years. Uh, who's the husband? And so, and they even say, you know, we could, we could stone you to death, but her punishment was for those who weren't familiar, they forced her to wear a scarlet letter A for adultery on her chest. Well, after a couple of years, they're like, yeah, maybe you can take that off. She's like, no, I kind of like it. I made it all pretty and such. So I know that cults like to call uh, us who have left different names for Jehovah's Witnesses and other groups. It's apostate, right? It's my response is you say that like it's a bad thing. Yep. <laughs> So it's a reclaimed slur. So it it takes some courage. It takes some some distance. But, uh, you know, those terms are are meant to be denigrating and derogatory. And initially they often are to us. But after a while, if we can be like Hester and Brittany go, you say that like it's a bad thing. I kind of like it. I'm owning it. Yeah. I'm with you, Dana. I'm such a suppressive person. Yeah. I am going to change my Twitter bio right now. And the first word is going to be apostate. Yes, yes. absolutely. <laughs> Love it. Absolutely. There you go. Brilliant. <laughs> By the way, my mom t- took me to see um, Tommy the movie uh, when I was way too young. I was like 14 and it's like, uh, um, what is it? I, Tina Turner as Gypsy the Acid Queen. It's like, oh my eyes. <laughs> A little Uncle Ernie, fiddle about, fiddle about. It's like, ooh, what is this? I I don't want to know. (laughs) Um, So we're coming to our hour now. So, um, I I mean, I could talk to you guys literally (laughs) all evening. Um, Might be good to go around and and just sort of um, finish up with a a final thought about the, you can talk about anything really, something you forgot to mention, something you want to follow up on somebody else, or a bit of a... Um, just a thought about the actual conference itself or anything really. So um, let's, let's do it in the reverse that I, that I started with. That means I can actually remember um, how I started, which I can't. Um, I think we started with Erica. So let's start with um, Casey. Uh, would you like to, to sort of give us your closing oh, thoughts? Wow. There's so much to, to say, really. I, I think I would like to echo what Erica said about um, being able to have those communications between mm. various individuals and network. I, I didn't realize until sort of on the Sunday even though we'd had access to the app for the for the week before 
Um, I don't think I knew my way around the app or actually how to utilize it to the maximum until it was kind of the end of the conference. So kind of the Monday, Tuesday afterwards, everybody was like, hey, we should do a meetup. But I think if I would have known how to work the app properly, I would have started the networking before the conference uh, to make sure that everything was tidied up uh, before, you know, everybody kind of leaves. Um so I tried to talk to as many people as possible at the conference as I feel I would have done that in person. And that won me a scholarship yes. for the, uh, for the year. Yes, so there you was were top me, of the table. Top of the leaderboard. Uh, so that's that's fantastic. Um, I feel like when you talk about cults and cult-like groups for long enough, everything comes together and it's the strangest thing. Uh, I have a Patreon who talks to me a lot about Educo and Dr. Tony Quinn. Um, mm. And then I was at CrimeCon and a, 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 a really well-known investigative journalist came up to me and said, do you know about Educo? Because I followed Tony Quinn and confronted him years ago. And I have boxes and boxes and boxes of stuff on Educo, which is what my Patreon has been trying my patron's been trying to so it's like everything comes together so in one of the panels it was titled the occult in cults and it was by joseph simhart and he was talking i thought he was going to talk about like the satanic panic because i've done a lot of that uh on, on my patreon uh page um and how it was kind of the cult that never existed and then he went to talk about uspensky and 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 Gurdjieff. And I was like, oh, and, and the fourth way. And then he was talking about how these groups kind of all branched off from these two people called Sharon Gans and Alex Horn. And I was like, oh, my goodness, Spencer Schneider's book, which actually uh, which actually went out today yeah. um, officially. She started the group that he was a part of for 20 plus years. And when they had to flee... I think it was San Francisco when when they had to flee because they were found to be abusing people and they went into hiding and rebranded and then everything became like untraceable. A few people broke away from from those two and created this thing called the Fellowship of Friends in the fourth way school, which still exists today. And I absolutely had no idea about any of this stuff and anybody breaking away from Sharon Gans until I went to watch the occult in cults. And I was just like, wow. So what I really liked about the conference was that even if you didn't think that a certain panel was going to be beneficial to you in some way or or interesting um, or, or whatever it is that you're looking to get out of the conference, I found that there were a few gems in there that surprised me. And that was, that was a, a really nice experience. To be awarded the scholarship to attend the conference and then also to access the, the ICSA materials for the year is obviously another huge bonus for me personally. What I would say around things that uh, I found perhaps not as positive. Um, so people listening might not know this about me, but I'm not somebody that has personally experienced cults or a cult-like group. So I'm literally coming at this uh, from like a, I want to say outsider's perspective, uh, but not in a way that kind of um, diminishes anybody else's experience I want to learn as much as I possibly can about everybody's lived experiences 
and journalists coverage of these groups and documentaries coverage to just have as much of a rounded view as possible um and i feel that because um because i'm not somebody with lived experience uh, people were rightfully uh, quite dubious of my presence um and i wouldn't say it felt exclusive um but it definitely felt like um there was perhaps some friction from people at times and I completely understand and respect why that's there. People that have experienced significant abuse and trauma are obviously going to be worried about, you know, people coming from the outside. Um, Elgin straight uses this term trauma porn. You know, people are trying to, to, to live off of, of other people's trauma porn. But I think it's also really important to highlight that we can't change the perceptions of, the, the types of people that join cults or why don't you just leave we, we we can't we can't reach we can't reach the communities further afield if we don't allow other people with different perspectives into the environment to 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 take the message away with them and spread it to other people you know my platform wouldn't exist if people didn't give me the opportunity to put their stories out there um, and I know that I try to do my due diligence and be as person centered as possible. And not everybody is going to be like that. But it was just a little bit kind of um, I felt on edge for the entire time, you know, trying to make sure that I was wording things properly um, and being as sensitive as possible, which I always try to do anyway. But it, it, I feel like I couldn't really take in as much as I would have done if I was a bit more relaxed in that environment. Hmm. that's really interesting yeah that's um a little bit sad as well i think um but um but yeah i i guess it, there's a lot of talk at times in various ex communities about um the ex communities themselves becoming yeah. quite cult like and there's yeah. been sort of quite Chris a bit Shelton of talk and, about and Pat that. Ryan actually talked a lot about that in one yeah. of the panels um hmm. so i i i i as i said i i understand it and I respect it and I'm I'm not trying to you know yeah. preach preach here that people should you know let everyone in and I know that some journalists are, are going to be you know exploitative in their own nature and we talked a little bit about this me, me and Erica joined a a meeting room where we talked a little bit about this as well um and I'm not trying to diminish anybody's experience in any sense of the word, uh, like at all. That's that's not what I'm trying to do. The only negative takeaway that I had was was just not feeling a hundred percent comfortable. Yeah, I think I think that's interesting and and uh, really good feedback. Um, I, I guess the the um, the thing I would say differentiates something like you um, from other uh treatments of cults is that you know some some treatments of cults are very sensationalized and um i think they they you know you could ex you could describe them as exploitative because of the way that it's done but i don't think anybody could ever accuse you of doing that so no. um yeah i i think um it has we have to um we have to have input from all sorts of different areas um I mean, I think there's still a long way to go. So this is my own personal, not criticism of the the event particularly, but but a criticism of the um, the environment of cultic studies as a whole is that it is, I think, very very um, centered around therapy and therapists. 
Um, I, I have nothing against therapists and, and I, you know, I want people to get therapy if they need it once they've left groups. Uh, I, I hear over and over again, uh, people who said how important that was for them. So absolutely. But to understand what's happening in cults, I think you need more than just the, the therapy side of it. You know, what's going on psychologically? How do people, what, what's the thinking around um, the, 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 the processes and, and ways that people get attracted and so on and so on? Some of that is is discussed, but, um, you know, let's put it this way. I didn't see a single flow chart on anybody's presentation, um, which tells me there's no cognitive psychologists that are at that um, that that conference. Um, and I'm not saying that they have all the answers either, but, you know, there's very little quantitative stuff done. There's very little cognitive psychology there. Um, and that is part of of understanding the the human condition. So I'd like to see more of that sort of thing as well. Mm. So yeah, we need we need more outsiders actually to come in and and talk yeah. about this stuff. So yeah, good point. Um, okay, um, Daniel, what, what's uh, what's your closing thoughts? Um, a few different things here, and a lot of it's in response to to what Casey just said. So interestingly, you mentioned the sat satanic panic. Um, one of my students in um, just this last semester, I have them do a semester long research paper in the spring. One of them chose that as her research project. Very <laughs> interesting. And she knows nothing about my ex cult experience, but I was able to kind of guide her a few things because obviously my background is saying, Oh, you might check out this website or that, that website. But um, it, it kind of brings out the point that as we talked and alluded to earlier, cult is not a scientific definition of anything. There are spectrums. There, there are small cults, one-on-one -on -one cults. Codependent relationships are like a cult. There are large cults that are well-known. There are cults that everybody would say, that's a cult. There are cults that most people would say, oh, you know, that's just kind of an odd religion. Most people don't even think Jehovah's Witnesses are a cult if they don't know much about it. Um, so that's kind of interesting. Um, but I forget who said this. One of the panels, it was a brilliant point that depending on the dynamics of any particular cult, because of the things I just talked about, about whether it's a cult or not, you could have two people in the same group and it could be a cult for one person and not for the other, right? People who tend to have that personality where they dive in and they go, they, they go uh, all the way in, true believers. It would be a cult for them. Or someone else might just be, oh, I go to those meetings once in a while. And yeah, it's it's... Mm. It's, it's not a cult. So that, that to me was kind of eye-opening, right? The same group might not be a, a cult for everybody. Um, one of the things I've noticed a lot after I've left, and, and Casey, you talked about um, ex-cult member communities, and, and, and I see that a lot. Uh, Stephen and I are, are both um, on Twitter, and, and I see his tweets, and he probably sees some of mine. And a lot of people talk about the ex-JW community. As if it was a, a thing, and I, I guess it is, but it's so informal, and um, and it, it's not always good either, because some people have left the group, but they haven't left the cult mindset, mm. and, and it is a human thing. We want to belong. We want to have a sense of, of community, and that's one of the things that draws us in, and, and so... That's something that I think we could do more research on and or get the message out more for people who have left. How can you leave in a healthy way? Because 
like I, I have been able to reconnect with some family and friends and, and I, I've made new friends and a lot of them are really interested. Oh, you were in a cult. Tell me about that. But if they were never in a cult, they cannot really understand. They're just curious. And so it is important for us to talk to people who were either in our same group or different groups because we can relate to and, and support and be compassionate in ways that someone who's never in a, a cult cannot do. But we also have to be careful because a lot of ex-cult members are still stuck in that angry thing and, and they try and form their 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 own cults um, in a sense. Um, so my last thought was this, in-person versus virtual. Uh, having been to two conferences and two workshops, the, the first conference in Bordeaux, of course, in person. Oh, and if you ever get to Bordeaux, if you've never been, what a beautiful uh, small city. Oh, my wife and I just fell in love with that. And it was so good to be in person with people and both as a participant and as a presenter. I do, as an educator, I do a lot of teaching one-on-one -on -one in groups. And it, it was it was hard to, to make that video to just your computer, imagining there were people in an audience, yeah. not knowing if anybody would ever even watch this thing and trying to be enthusiastic. Oh, you don't have that live, fe live yeah. feedback, but also not getting to, to associate and participate. So I'm, did, I am glad they have that, that chat thing. And, mm. and I kind of felt like I sort of had to push myself with this one to, to attend more workshops and different presentations. And I was looking forward to going to Montreal. I've never been outside of the airport in Montreal, except for layovers, right? And I thought, oh, what a great thing to do. And I was so disappointed. But I know if I was really there, you know, you're there, you're going to go to different workshops, you're going to go to different presentations. And it, and it was easy to just, you know, the ones like I know Steven, so I'm going to watch his for sure, right? You know, and get to know you guys. Uh, so that was a challenge. And, and but I was pleasantly surprised to see how a lot of people did go to a lot of different presentations. Hopefully we'll be able to get together in person soon, right? Take hands. Yeah. Be, interesting. <laughs> be interested to see what happens. I think um, maybe hybrid is the, um, yeah. is the future. I don't know. Um, just, I, I must say this before I go, a couple of mentions of the satanic panic. Um, uh, in our early days of the podcast, we had Chris, French on our podcast so he's a he's a British uh, professor um, and he's he's one of those guys that they always wheel out when they talk about the occult or as he calls it crazy shit um, so he's like the professor of crazy shit and he's absolutely brilliant so um, yeah if you want to hear his take on the satanic panic um, go and listen to, to one of our early episodes. Um, he, he's a lovely guy, um, and uh, we really enjoyed talking to Chris. Uh, what was right, his okay. Name what was his name? Um, Chris Chris French. Chris French. He was. Um, I think he's re retired officially, but they get called emeritus professor um, once they they retire of Goldsmith um, College, which is where Celine went to, to university. So he's. Um, yeah, he's a lovely guy, um, but he's, he's interesting to talk to. Um, okay, so um, Erica, uh, what have you got to say then to wrap us all up? So, Something uh, inspirational to uh, 
<laughs> to go away up. <laughs> so yeah, being from Cape Town, which is on the arse yeah. end of the world, um, and really our currency is pathetic compared to everywhere else. So going to an in-person conference would be exorbitantly expensive for me. Mm-hmm. So I think for me, a, a hybrid would be perfect. And yeah, Casey, like you just mentioned, that the that you can go back and watch the the um, presentations that you missed for 30 days. I wish it would be on there for longer, but yeah, for 30 days, you can go back. I love that. I have to say that I sometimes, especially lately, I've been feeling really sorry for myself um, in that I feel that if I didn't keep pushing um, to have Kwasi's to be accountable, that it would mm. all just go away. And I've, every now and again, I think how awesome it would be if I could just put this down and just live my life because I have a beautiful life. Um, I'm not doing this for myself. I'm doing it for the children who are growing up there. And attending a conference like this um, just gave me a, just that much needed boost that I'm not alone and um, what I'm doing is really worthwhile. And then, of course, getting that award was amazing because I have this big imposter syndrome like um, that I don't think I know what I'm doing or talking about. And I'm getting all emotional now. Um, But it was just so – I just found it so – energizing because you know when you're and there are other people who speak up in that but I feel like a lot of people have lost that energy and I'm very often apart from Daniel in Australia and Robin in Germany I'm very often the only person you know still pushing this like we mustn't let this go Mm. and it Mm. becomes it is exhausting, and then and then I attend a conference like this, and I'm just like, how I I I, the, it's just the most amazing, energizing thing, and the, the affirmations I got from other people, but also just hearing other people's stories and just thinking, it is so worthwhile, you know, and if there had been a me, thirty years ago, there might not be a me now. And so I want to be that person who is going to save others from being in my position in 30 years from now. So I found it incredibly um, empowering and and um, encouraging. Yeah. That's a lovely. That's a lovely way to finish. I asked for something inspirational, Erica, and um, <laughs> you delivered. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, I, I, I want to echo all of that. Um, I think. Um, I mean, who knows? We, we all want to. We all sort of see what we want to see to a degree. But I feel that awareness of these groups um, and the coercive methods used by them and individuals in relationships too 
Um, I think the the awareness of that is increasing. Um, I really feel that. I know it's difficult because we're involved, but um, you know, this weekend um, over the last sort of well over the last three or four days. There have been three different articles in in different newspapers and so on about Jehovah's Witnesses, for instance, um, as an example. Um, it, it's the awareness is definitely increasing. Um, there'll always be people trying to exploit others, I guess, um, uh, for certainly in our lifetimes. But um, I feel like there's increased awareness, and let's hope that through that comes. Um, yeah, some some more accountability for those people that that really should be held to account for their behaviour. Um, but yeah, so thank you so much, um, Casey. You had something you wanted to yeah, say? Yeah, I just wanted to say that I think that all three of you sitting here today speaking about your experiences is inspirational in itself. Um, and I wouldn't be sitting here if if you weren't willing to come forward and tell your stories. So I know that it, it must be so exhausting, Erica, but you, <laughs> you, I imagine, have saved lives and will continue to do that. So, you know, you can always just message me if if it feels like it's if it feels like it's getting desperate um, and uh, uh, we, we talk on and off quite regularly. But um yeah, just uh, you inspire me on, on almost a daily basis. So, um, you know, you have to keep going. Absolutely. And and the work, I think, is also worth considering. You know, they, um, that the book um, you've written is actually a beautifully written book. So, yes, of course, it, yeah. it's talking about something very important. But I think the, the craft is also something that I particularly enjoyed in that. So for me that's that's something else you know that's a that's another um element to bear in mind it's not just about the battle it's about doing something that you love and and i think you do that very very well great well thank you so much it's been absolutely fantastic i've thoroughly enjoyed talking to all of you um on the show thank you so much for coming on um and of course the final thank you goes to the ICSA, the International Cultic Studies Association, thank you very much for putting on that conference and everybody involved. It must be a massive undertaking uh, to do all of that, get all the speakers together, uh, get all of the uh, events organised. So thank you very much. What a great job you did. Uh, and of course, it gave us something to talk about. So thank you for that. And we'll see you again next year. We'll talk again, I'm sure, all of you. Um, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, thanks Stephen. Steve. Bye, Daniel. Bye, Erica. Thank you yes, so, so much. Bye, Erica. Thanks, guys. <laughs> what Should I Think About is an Evil Sheep production. 